It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me, or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. The balloons were left hanging as Netanyahu waved goodbye from what might have been the final election night. Once again, his Likud party won the most number of seats, but not enough to claim outright victory and break Israel's political dysfunction. Four elections in two years and an inability to form a lasting government. As he left the stage, the many political enemies he collected along the way began gathering to oust him aiming to bring an end to one of the most influential figures in Israeli history. For Netanyahu, shifting the diplomatic paradigm in the region from land for peace to peace for peace. But after 12 consecutive years in power, Netanyahu making little progress on peace with the Palestinians. Three bloody conflicts with Hamas-led militants in Gaza, more settlements in the West Bank, all helping make Israel an increasingly partisan issue in U.S. politics. Meanwhile, an ongoing legal battle on charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust, threatening jail time, Netanyahu denying all the charges. Even after a world-leading coronavirus vaccination campaign, in the end, it was the personal equation, the many enemies made along the way, that led to his downfall former allies and longtime foes, reaching across the political spectrum with one common goal, bringing King Bibi's reign to an end, at least for now. All right, Sandy Rios with you. That is, uh, that's the big news story that happened in the last 24 hours. Benjamin Netanyahu, by one vote, uh, is now no longer prime minister, and in his place is Naftali Bennett. Uh, who is, uh, well, all right, we're going to talk a lot about this. We're going to go to uh, Israel in just a few minutes and have a report from a friend of mine who's a reporter there uh, who will tell us exactly what's going on. But this is a very big deal. It's really life-changing. Did, did you feel the earth move? Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been the prime minister for 12 years uh, and has kept Israel pretty safe, you know, from uh, from what's been going on. And Neftali Bennett uh, has hardly any support by the Israeli people. It's a very interesting story how this happened, and many are saying uh, what's happened to Benjamin Netanyahu in terms of all the bribery charges that was CNN, of course, their report, it gives you an inkling as to the press there is like the press here in the United States, and they do have it out for Benjamin Netanyahu, and we'll talk about that uh, at great length in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. Um, Also, uh, uh, President Biden is at the G7 summit (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm a couple. I'm sorry. This 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 article made me laugh this morning. I and, and heaven knows we need to laugh. Well, you know it's my bad sense of humor, so you might not laugh. But Joe Biden met for the first time with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. You might remember that when 
uh, Barack Obama met with the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Uh, he was he was mm, no no no. I'm getting this backwards. When Bush was in office, the British had uh, given him a bust of Winston Churchill. Uh, but when uh, President Obama came into the office, he made sure they did they took care of it. They wrapped it up and put it away or destroyed it. We don't know what. So it was just an interesting little story about an exchange of gifts. And I think Barack Obama ended up giving a the Prime Minister of England, uh, a whole bunch of his uh, speeches on CD or, or, you know, some kind of format like that. So so this is a, a tradition to exchange gifts. Well, President Joe Biden gave Prime Minister Boris Johnson a brand new $6,000 custom-made touring bicycle and helmet at their first meeting last Thursday. And so uh, Boris Johnson gave Biden, in return, a Wikipedia photo of a British mural depicting black 19th century abolitionist Frederick Douglass in return. So they copied a photo that they got from Wikipedia uh, of uh, Frederick Douglass as a gift for for Joe Biden. And Joe Biden gave Boris Johnson a $6,000 custom-made touring bicycle and helmet. I'm sorry, I just think that's funny. I do, I think that's funny. I don't even know what it means. Maybe, Maybe if I knew more, it would make perfect sense, but... I just think it's humorous. Seems a little inequitable. Kind of like the um, bust of Winston Churchill versus tapes of uh, Obama speeches in that exchange earlier a few years ago. Uh, by the way, it, oh, oh, say I need to play one more thing before I talk. Um, Nancy Pelosi was is happy. She's ecstatic. She is so happy that Joe Biden is out there at the G7 summit representing us so well. And she made some comments on CNN to that effect. I want you to hear uh, the delusions. Of Nancy Pelosi, here they are. Well, the, I'm very proud of the fact that the president is in Europe saying we're back. Uh, we're back for climate. We're back for open society. We're open for the, uh, uh, the relationship that we've had in NATO in terms of security, 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 which is so important. And I can tell you in my meetings with all these people, most of it pre-COVID, but much of it by Zoom since mm-hmm. then, that they are so happy that America is back and that look forward to this visit by the president. In terms of his meeting with uh, Putin, I think that he should meet with them. They should uh, have a, a line of communication. And issues like cybersecurity and energy, are, of course, uh, uh, are not necessarily on the table in that meeting, uh, but are the reality that we have to deal with. And energy and cybersecurity are probably two okay, items enough. that you may know come up. And then she goes on to say about you know how uh, how horrible that that President Biden is going to meet with uh, President Putin, and uh, that how controlled by President Putin uh, President uh, Trump was, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how relieved she is that Joe Biden is such a strong leader. And so on and on it goes. The interesting thing is uh, another article I read says that uh, Biden is, of course, at the G7. I think they may have actually even wrapped up. Uh, But at one point, the world leaders openly laughed at his forgetfulness because he kept getting things confused. And so um, I'm not sure that they have the respect that Nancy's claiming and certainly climate change, the foolishness of climate change. My grandson asked me just a few days ago, my 12-year-old grandson, uh, Grandma, what do you think about climate change? Uh, interesting question from a little boy who's been in Scotland for the last uh, four and a half years, and he honestly didn't know what I thought about it. And I just talked to him about the the hubris of humans thinking that they could control 
nature in any way or form. A slight effect, maybe, if they're lucky, but hardly any. And I read to him uh, the article, the article, (laughs) too many articles, the scripture passage uh, in Job of chapter 38, where God asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know where the snow is stored? Do you know how to separate the oceans? Do you know how much? He goes through all of this and puts man in his place. And I think that's a perfect response to this whole notion of uh, man-made climate change. But anyway, the foolishness is embraced by Europe, and Nancy Pelosi is excited that Joe Biden, strong leader that he is, uh, is representing us. America is back under the leadership of Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the world leaders, the reality is they're laughing at him. They're laughing at us, and some are worried sick. That's the truth. We'll find out a little bit more about that when we go to Israel in just a few minutes. By the way, I want to say thank you for... uh, uh, just well, I, I'm glad that very grateful that Fred Jackson and Christian Adams, my good friends, uh, were able to host for me while I was gone. I know that you were in very good hands. I've read that you were in very good hands. You enjoyed those shows, and I'm uh, very grateful to them. And I'm also very grateful to my boss Tim Wildman for giving me three weeks off. <laughs> Have you ever had three weeks off? I've never had three weeks off uh, at one, con- at, you know, at a consecutive uh, uh, in consecutive order. But Tim was so kind. I asked him for this time because I hadn't seen my family in 18 months. Uh, They were coming back from Scotland again, as I said, for the first time for four and a half years. And we thought uh, that they were going to be then off to Hong Kong. And I wasn't sure when I would see them again. That since has changed. Uh, But um, I am so grateful. I am so grateful to Tim Wildman and AFA for giving me that time off. And I appreciate your patience, too. I mean, again, I know you were in good hands, but I know some of you are wondering, what in the world happened? And uh, why such a long absence? It's unusual on radio. Hosts just don't leave their posts for that long, and I never have. Uh, But uh, I appreciate your uh, your endurance of that uh, absence on my part. And uh, thank you for letting me spend some time with my children. I've got Let's see, well, Moses is 12, he's the oldest, and then Kate's is 9, Asa is 7, and Lucy is 3. And our house is filled with uh, laughter and the pitter-patter of feet. It's usually quiet, but it's it's bulging at the seams right now, and we're we're having a great time. And so um, it's just good for... um, You know, it's good for our heart. What what do we live and work for if it isn't for our families? And what do we fight for if it isn't for our children and our grandchildren? That is exactly why we fight. It's the motivating factor for me to sit here and get up early every morning and work hard for their sake, for their future. And so I know that most of you feel that way also. You have a responsibility. And so uh, we take it seriously. And uh, thank you again. Thank you for letting me be gone for such a long time. All right. A lot of things have been happening since I left. You should see the pile of things I was trying to read this morning. You know, it's almost impossible for me to catch up with you for three weeks of news. But a lot of things did happen. And one of those was, well, now we're learning that, you know, a lot of the things that the news has said about President Trump are not true. It's shocking. But we now know that some of them are just not true. There's a montage to illustrate that. It has to do with... President Trump walking across after St. John's Church was burned, not down to the ground, but burned. They set fires. The Black Lives Matter protesters, Antifa, took over the plaza in front of the White House and were burning and rioting. It was just an amazing thing. And President Trump surprises them by walking through the plaza after the uh, police had cleared the area and going over to St. John's Church and holding up a Bible. But do you remember what they said he was doing. You remember the narrative? Anybody remember? 
he didn't really care about St. John's Church. President Trump didn't. That was just a photo op. That's what we were told. Well, in fact, let me remind you. Let's listen to this montage. You can hear what the media told us was really happening because, of course, they knew what President Trump was thinking. Here it is. Now, you might wonder why did the police, why were they ordered to move on protesters at that moment? Obviously, the president wanted a photo op. I mean, for a photo op? To make way for a White House photo op. Lafayette Square photo op. Uh, To clear out these protesters from Lafayette Park so the president could have this photo op. The president wanted peaceful protesters, the kind he said he just supports. He wanted them out of the way for his photo op. And it was President Trump sending a message, a message that he feels good about today, looking at these images. He wanted to show that he could move Americans physically out of the way to do this photo op. And his administration's violent clearing of a peaceful protest for a photo op. Clear them out with uh, with gas uh, and, and go in there with batons. Uh, and uh, they do so for the simple reason that the president wants to walk across Pennsylvania Avenue through Lafayette Park to go have a photo op. Even if it meant tear gassing peaceful protesters, hitting them with flashbangs, pepper spray and rubber bullets, somebody handed the president that Bible and then he stood there and that was it. That was the photo op. The force was used, as I said the day before, to clear the president's way to St. John's Church for that photo op. There is 100% zero correlation between our operation and the president's visit to the church. Tonight, a jarring new report on that incident. The Interior Department's Inspector General says the park police did not clear Lafayette Park for then-President Trump's trip to St. John's Church, but did it to allow a contractor to install a security fence around the White House. Oops. So now we know uh, that was not at all what happened. And you know what? Maybe it was actually President Trump's idea to carry the Bible over in front of the burned, legendary St. John's Church. That someone just didn't hand him a Bible and set him up for a photo op where they, you know, pepper sprayed and uh, did all the other horrible things they did to those protesters who were just simply, you know, standing on the streets doing nothing except burning churches and rioting in front of the White House. Very dangerous times. Uh, it's just an, a bizarre situation and a bizarre treatment of, uh, by the news media. How disgraceful. There's a new article this morning uh, in the New York Post. Uh, more media lies about Donald Trump and Bill Barr debunked. Don't have time to get into it right now, but there are more and more and more. And uh, so it's just confirming what we already knew. All right, stay tuned. We're going to go to Israel, and you're going to get to hear what happens over there and why it's important to all of us. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for health care can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 
833-44-BIBLE. You're putting tears of joy on the faces of Bibleist believers in Africa. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International. And for weeks now, you've heard me talk about the severe shortage of Bibles available to Christians in Africa. This is where Christianity is growing in the greatest numbers in the world. And yet most evangelical Christians have no access to the Bible. But you ask, what's it like when a Christian receives a Bible in Africa? Well, hear from this pastor in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there, she knelt down and she cried. At the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. Pastor Joseph in South Africa said that woman, when she received her Bible, didn't merely say thank you. She wept for joy, and that's what you can do for Bibleist believers in Africa at $5 a Bible. Make your most generous gift by calling 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or give at sendbiblesnow.org. That's sendbiblesnow.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. Are you looking for a university that provides a quality Christian education with excellent academic and athletic programs? Well, I want to invite you to visit Liberty University, where they offer multiple visiting opportunities to fit your schedule. Plan a visit to their Central Virginia campus and stay for an afternoon, a day, or an entire weekend. You can also take a virtual tour from the comfort of your own home. Plan your visit today by texting "Go Visit" to the number 49596. Again, that's "Go Visit" to the number 49596. The people for the ethical treatment of animals are very upset with all of you humans accusing you of speciesism. PETA says humans need to stop using supremacist language when insulting other humans. They say calling someone an animal and meaning it as an insult reinforces the idea that humans are superior to other animals, which we are. Instead of calling someone a chicken, for example, PETA wants you to use the word coward. Instead of a snake, say jerk. You can't call anybody a rat anymore. You have to call them a snitch. And all of you Elvis impersonators, well, you probably ought to steer clear of you ain't nothing but a hound dog might trigger the people-eating-tasty-animals crowd. Last year, PETA caused a national uproar when they said we should stop referring to cats and dogs as our pets. They said it was an insult to Fluffy and Spot. You know, it sounds like the folks in charge of PETA are bird-brained. I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. After more than 12 years, Israel now has a new prime minister. Naftali Bennett will lead the Jewish state and also a newly formed coalition government. Outgoing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was visibly upset in his final moments in office. After Bennett was sworn in, reactions started to pour in from around the world. President Biden was the first world leader to release a statement saying he congratulated the new leader along with Yair Lapid, who will rotate in as prime minister in 2023. Bennett quickly responded on Twitter, saying he looks forward to working with President Biden to strengthen ties between Israel and the United States. Fox report this morning. This has just happened in the last 24 hours or so. Benjamin Netanyahu, after 12 years as Israel's prime minister, you can imagine a lot of people in Israel grew up with him. It's pretty traumatic for them, and it's traumatic for other reasons that are more significant than just acquaintance with him or trust with him. He only lost by one vote, and he lost to someone who has a very, very small, slim support uh, of the Israeli people, Naftali Bennett. But who is Naftali Bennett? We're going to find out how this happened, what the implications are, 
and we go to Israel right now to find that out. Caroline Glick is a senior columnist of the Israel Hiram and Newsweek. She's also senior fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Center for Security Policy and our good friends there. Uh, Caroline has been writing uh, in Israel for a very long time, but she grew up in Chicago, so we have that in common. Uh, She actually served later as an assistant foreign policy advisor for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, so that tips your hand as to how she feels about him. And yet her reporting is uh, excellent, and you will enjoy this conversation. Caroline, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Sandy. Yeah, so I realize, uh, we've discussed this before on the air, how many parties there are in uh, Israel. It's hard for Americans to, uh, in a basically two-party system, to understand how this operates. And I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but can you give us kind of a primer on how this happened? How did Naftali Bennett, when he has, I think, what, 5% support, actually, of the Israeli people, how did he become prime minister like this? So it is really complicated because for people used to a two-party system, it's hard to understand how a system can work with, you know, 12 or 15 parties represented in a 120-seat parliament like we have in Israel. So I'll just try to make it uh, simple. Usually, or really until yesterday, uh, Israel had one or one of two types of government. We had um, government. We have basically. All the parties say that there are 20, just for purposes of the argument. Ten are on on what is called the right-wing block, which is uh, ideologically right, uh, center-right, and uh, religious conservative. Um, and on the left, you have progressives, you have sort of center-left, moderates, and then you have now something that we didn't have in the past, is you have Arab nationalist parties that are now included in that uh, group. So those are the two blocks, and always there's been one large party on the right, one party on the left, and the basic idea was that if you had 61 seats or more in your on your ideological side in your block, then you would form the government, and the vice and the prime minister would be the person who's the head of the largest party in your block. Um, and then there were times, uh, several times in Israel's uh, 74-year history, where neither head of the two blocks, was able to put together a coalition of just his partners. And so um, then we had something called a unity government. And unity governments are when the leaders of the two blocks come together and recognizing that neither of them can form a government on his own, they come together and they form a government together. And so the advantage of unity governments is that you don't have to worry a lot about the smaller parties and paying them off or making them happy or caring and feeding for them. The disadvantage of unity governments is that you can't do a lot It's a, because you're at ideological loggerheads. And so aside from really uh, leading the country in crises like war or doing the sort of the daily, daily operations of a government, you can't make any large uh, or significant strategic initiatives because you don't agree on what the strategy should be because you have different ideological worldviews. But you know, in, in those are the two kinds of governments that we've had. And, and as you mentioned, Naftali has a very small party. Uh, he only he won seven seats in the last elections in March. One of the members of his coalition of his party uh, uh, dropped off from his party because he said that he would not uh, uh, he would not agree, would not support Naftali's efforts to form a government with the left. And that's really 
the thing here. What we have here is you have a left that has about uh, 45 seats with the Arabs. So they don't have 61 seats. They can't form a government. Um, what they did, instead of forming a unity government, instead of having the head of the largest party on the left form a government with Netanyahu, they wanted to destroy Netanyahu. So instead of uh, of uh, forming a unity government uh, with, with Likud, as has normally been the practice, the head of the largest party on the left, this man named Yair Lapid, who's now the uh, alternative prime minister, and he's set to come into office as prime minister in two years, um, he, he did something different. What he did was he uh, worked with two the heads of two disgruntled, uh, heads of two ideo- supposedly ideological right-wing parties, meaning to the right of Likud, uh, who are disgruntled, who don't like Netanyahu, who are disaffected with uh, Likud, uh, which which insists on supporting Netanyahu, and uh, one of them actually was in Likud, and he had a primary challenge against Netanyahu, and he lost by a landslide. And so he left Likud and formed his own party. His name is Giron Sar. And so Giron Sar and, and Naftali both uh, ran as uh, anti-Netanyahu right-wing parties that presented themselves to the right of Likud. And Gidon Sar won six seats, and, and Naftali Bennett won seven. So Likud has 30, and together they have 13, and now it's 12, because one of uh, Bennett's uh, uh, party colleagues refuses to work with him anymore. And all right, so, so, hey, look, so let me ask you this. Uh, Mark am I, am I getting you all confused? Yeah, so no, no, no. Well, <laughs> well, no, I keep, I'm taking notes here, but I, I, I want to get to some... Uh, I, no, it's a, excellent. We get it. Let me ask you, though, uh, Mark Levin, his analysis is this, and I just was curious to know, Caroline, if you agree with him. He says that Naftali ran, uh, as you just stated, to the right of Netanyahu. I guess on uh, domestic issue, I'm, issues, I'm guessing. Uh, certainly not the military. Um, and so, but then... Mark Levin says that Naftali then abandoned his principles to form this coalition with the left, including the Arab parties, so abandoning what he really believed to work with people who really hate Netanyahu and want the opposite of what he claims he wants in order to win this prime minister position. Do you think that's accurate? I do, and and that's the thing that I was trying to get to. I gave all of that uh, context for how things are usually done to explain what's actually been done. So what happened was that the left wing formed a government with two breakaway uh, right-wing parties that were willing to sacrifice all of their promises, all of their ideological bearings, all of the principles that they've been running on and presenting them to the, to the, to the, the public as being the champions of for their entire political career. And they were willing to leave all of that behind, leave their supporters behind, leave their voters behind, and join uh, with Lapid and the left and the radical left and the Arab nationalists to form the most radical coalition government Israel's ever seen for the sole purpose of ousting Netanyahu from power. And what unifies them as a government is just one thing, and that is visceral, poisonous hatred and uh, unbridled jealousy of Netanyahu, and not to mention uh, peppered and salted with an enormous amount of disdain for his voters. 
It sounds like a mirror, uh, and, and even though the details are different, uh, the overall concept is just almost the mirror of what's happened here. And um, now others say, and you're part of the media, so you would know this, that the media in Israel has done to Netanyahu what the media here in the U.S. did to Trump, lying. Uh, I don't know if there's truth to these charges against him. They keep talk- CNN. I played an article, a story from them a little bit earlier. Caroline, they talked about you know the, these charges against him that have been hanging over his head for the last year or two. Um, is that trumped up, or is there some truth to that from your perspective? So here's the deal with the uh, with the cases against Netanyahu that he's now being now he's being held on trial for. Um, they are uh, manufactured crimes. I mean, they don't actually exist in the law book. So, for instance, uh, and by the way, they're falling apart as we speak uh, in the court because the, it, it was all it, 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 none of it none of it uh, holds up to even the slightest scrutiny, which is why. They haven't been scrutinized, but but they haven't been scrutinized by the media because the media hate Netanyahu with a with a burning passion. So he was he was accused. He's indicted for bribery, but the actions for which uh, he's being indicted are not are not found in any statute in Israel for bribery. It is they claim that he sought favorable coverage from a website from a news website. That in exchange, he gave the owner of the website, who was also the owner of a large telecommunications company, regulatory favors. So the first problem uh, with that is that under Israel's bribery statute, uh, media coverage is not a form of bribery. So that they had to redefine the statute in order to claim that the action that he's accused of doing even is a form of bribery. It's not. So the charge itself is illegal because it doesn't exist in law. Then the other problem is that he got horrible coverage from the website. And the third problem is that he had nothing to do with the regulatory process that was, even though he was the, the, the minister of communications at the time, in addition to serving as prime minister, uh, the entire the entire process by which this uh, the owner of the same website received licenses uh, that uh, that the prosecution claims were uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, give and take for bribery, um, that uh, Netanyahu wasn't even involved with that, and the entire process of receiving those licenses was uh, completely professional, and uh, there was nothing, there was no problem with anything that was done. So the entire thing was just manufactured, and we've been placed, it's very much like the Russia hoax in the United States. The Israeli public has been put through sort of uh, from uh, 2018 when they opened the investigations against him until 2020 when he was indicted. Um, just this constant, uh, this constant echo chamber of attacking him and claiming that he's a criminal and a crook and uh, and corrupt. Uh, based on nothing but innuendo and rumor and manufactured cases about crimes that don't exist in any law book. So this is what we've been subjected to for the past few years. And by the way, Naftali Bennett acknowledged this when he was trying to convince Netanyahu a year and a half ago to appoint him defense minister. He was trying to extort that job from Netanyahu. He wrote several posts on his Facebook page acknowledging that the entire legal process that was being carried out against Netanyahu at the time was corrupt and illegal. Um, so he knows that exactly what's happened. He knows exactly what 
what the stakes are, and then he joined the left in pushing Netanyahu out of office. So it's very funny, because since Naftali is uh, the party that literally calls itself to the right, Yamina means to the right in Hebrew, meaning to the right of, of Likud, um, it's hard for people outside of Israel to understand right, why right-wingers in Israel are so upset about this and why left-wingers in Israel are dancing are so excited. Yeah. Well, let's talk about let's talk about what this actually means. Uh, and since you're you were raised in America, you understand that we don't understand all the work inner workings of what you. There's a lot of domestic issues that we have we don't really understand. But the the, the huge thing to me, it seems to be your security, the attacks from Hamas, and all of the things. So uh, this now left coalition led by a so-called conservative. Do you have any way of knowing how they will respond if Hamas starts bombing again, or does Hamas have reason for hope that uh, something, uh, you know, territory is going to be gained, or wh- what do they hope to to gain by this uh, this new prime minister, Naftali Bennett? Um, well, you know, they they certainly have a majority of the ministers in this government who would be happy to give away Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to. All takers. So, I mean, that, that's just a fact. They have an Islamist party that's aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood that's in the government. And just so you understand how narrow it is, like you said last night, when it uh, when it won the vote of confidence in the Knesset, the Knesset has, 60, has 120 uh, members, as I mentioned before, and the vote of confidence, only 60 people voted for the government. And there are actually 61 people in this coalition, which means that basically every single member of the coalition can bring it down. But what it really means is that the government, for its survival, is beholden to its most radical members. So in this government, the most radical members is the Islamist party, the United Arab List, which, again, is aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood. And... um, they uh, threatened not to vote for the government yesterday because uh, the government was uh, taking actions um, to destroy uh, illegal buildings uh, built by their voters, the Bedouin, in the negative, in Israel's south. And so they have a veto over every single thing, all law enforcement towards uh, Bedouin, all law enforcement towards Israeli Arabs. And uh, if the government crosses whatever imaginary line they create on any particular moment, then they can extort whatever concessions that they want in order for the government to continue functioning, which has really been a source of fear, specifically for Egypt, because Egypt has been fighting a war against the Muslim Brotherhood in yep. the Sinai, where it, uh, it has established itself as, as Islamic State, as ISIS, and throughout Egypt. Uh, they seized power uh, in 2012, and uh, and uh, the, the military brought them down in 2013. And since then, they've had President Assisi, who had been the chief of staff of the Egyptian army in charge, but they've been fighting an insurrection by the Muslim Brotherhood since then. And uh, now you have the Israeli wing of the Muslim Brotherhood, who has veto power over everything that the Israeli government does. But I, I mean, I, I've heard reports that uh, the Egyptians are just in a state of shock over what Israel has done, and, and rightly so. I mean, Israelis still don't quite understand what has happened because the media here is uh, very much uh, trying to obscure the significance of what of what uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid have done. 
Well, we get that. We surely get that. We we understand because it's the same but different. It truly is. So you've woke, you've awakened this morning to kind of a shock, and the people are not getting the whole truth, and they don't really understand it. And the, the whole process by which uh, Naftali Bennett was uh, became prime minister may not have been illegal, but it was uh, a sort of a sleight of hand. And so now you guys are in very very vulnerable position. And I have to say, you know. Benjamin Netanyahu, two things we could say of the many things that he's accomplished. Uh, he was just a tower of strength when it came to national security. It was under his leadership that uh, Jerusalem finally was it was acknowledged as the capital and that the United States moved there uh, with President Trump um, as our president moved their capital finally to Jerusalem. And it was under uh, Netanyahu that we really pushed back this Iran deal that had been signed by Barack Obama. So that takes us to Iran uh, what what are your fears about what a prime ministership and this new coalition by led by Naftali Bennett will have on your uh, the, the threat from Iran by, from to Israel? I think that the threat is significant, and you know I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I mean it's first and foremost bad for my country, for Israel, which is you know it's deeply uh, disconcerting. While uh, because. Um, it's notable that the first foreign leader that congratulated Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid on forming their government was, was President Biden, because President Biden uh, is trying to reinstate uh, America's signature to the Iran nuclear deal. And, and the implications of that isn't that they're going to slow down Iran's program. They're not. It's, it's the, 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 the optical illusion that is a nuclear deal is that it's presented as a nuclear nonproliferation agreement that, oh, well, if we get back to the deal, then we're going to slow Iran's progress. We're going to block them from getting a nuclear arsenal. And this is the fundamental lie at the heart of the nuclear deal, because the nuclear deal does nothing of that sort. It enables Iran to get the nuclear, a nuclear arsenal. It just uh, puts it off officially or puts off international recognition and, and acceptance of legitimacy of an Iranian nuclear arsenal for nine years, until 2030. But it enables Iran to get it, just to do it, um, you know, in a more limited way, uh, with more limited progress from year to year. But uh, that that's that's the truth of the nuclear deal. And so when Biden says that he wants to reinstate a deal that Trump left because Iran was breaching, um, and Iran continues, of course, to breach it to this day, even more fundamentally, what he's saying is that the policy of the Biden administration is to enable Iran to become a nuclear power and to enable Iran to become the regional hegemon in the Middle East. So that that uh, the nuclear diplomacy of the Biden administration is actually a geopolitical shift of American politic of America's allies in the Middle East away from Israel and the Sunni Arab states and the Gulf and in Egypt and towards Iran and the axis of you know what. Bush referred to as the axis of evil, and so this is this is the change that he's enacting. That's the implication of, of Biden's nuclear diplomacy with Iran. So Bibi Netanyahu was the most outspoken critic of that policy, both when it was adopted and initiated by the Obama administration, and now under Biden. Um, Caroline, let me interrupt you just for a second. Can you stay with me okay. just about uh, ten more minutes? Is that possible? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Because I I want to I want you to finish your sentence on that because we need to kind of land the plane and see what that actually might mean. And also, I want to ask you if Benjamin Netanyahu. I know he made gave a speech last night. I want to talk a little bit about that. 
Uh, and he says he's going to be back. And I want to ask you if you think that's possible and un- under what circumstances. My guess is Caroline Glick. And by the way, she does a Mideast News Hour uh, that's uh, that you can hear where she kind of fleshes these things out uh, on a regular basis. And again, senior columnist for the Israel Hayom and the News and Newsweek, and a senior fellow for the Middle Eastern Affairs at Center for Security Policy. Have you been looking for a way to serve others? Are you able to serve in a ministry without being paid? You and Friendships might be the perfect match. Friendships is currently taking applications for volunteers providing aid to disaster victims, refugees, and the impoverished, both here at home and around the world. Get more information at friendships.org or by calling 337-433-5022. Hello, I'm Gary Roby, host of Call to Worship, heard each Sunday on American Family Radio. This one-hour program will lead you in a special time of worship and praise. We will focus on God's Word, spoken, and in music. Call to Worship has a different topic each week as we glorify God together. Be sure to join us at 5 a.m. Central each Sunday for a call to worship right here on American Family Radio. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep on deceiving. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. After spending more than a year mocking, ridiculing, and excoriating anyone who suggested the Wuhan flu just may have leaked from a lab, ABC's Jonathan Carl is finally admitting that he and other journalists have egg on their faces. They refuse to do their job, you know, journalism, solely because they didn't like former President Trump. Carl said, some things may be true, even if Donald Trump said them. You would have known that, Johnny Boy, if you had a shred of integrity and commitment to following the facts wherever they lead, instead of being a regressive political activist posing as a reporter. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Brian Fisher here reading from the Boy to Man book for fathers to read to and with their 12-year-old sons. Quote, God sees things that you don't, and so you need to place your trust in Him without holding anything back. One of the implications of God making our path straight is that he can make a way for you when there seems to be no way. He can open doors that no man can shut, sometimes doors you didn't even know were there, and have a surprise waiting for you on the other side of that door. I applied to the college I went to because I wanted to get the best education I could get. My purpose for college was to get an education, but God's purpose was to call me into ministry. Order a copy of the Boy to Man book today as a Father's Day gift at resources.afa.net, resources.afa.net. Catch Brian Fisher on Focal Point, weekday afternoons at 105 Central on American Family Radio. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The fall from power yesterday of longtime Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calls to mind the thankless banishment of Winston Churchill when he was delivering Britain from the scourge of Nazism at World War II's end. At least in Churchill's case, it came as a period of acute national peril 
was receding. Today, the dangers to the Jewish state are, if anything, intensifying. The Biden administration has helped transform what was, just six months ago, one of the most promising geostrategic environments for the free world's outpost in the Middle East into one fraught with emboldened enemies, undermined allies, and strained bilateral relations with Washington. And unlike Churchill, Bibi Netanyahu was not decisively defeated at the polls, but by an improbable and unsustainable parliamentary coalition. He may well soon be back in charge, which would be good for Israel and for America. This is Frank Gaffney. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios back with you. Just to repeat, if you just tuned in, uh, just last night, Frank just mentioned it, referred to it. Benjamin Netanyahu was ousted from his 12-year reign as prime minister of Israel by one vote in the parliament. And he was uh, uh, defeated by Naftali Bennett, who formed a coalition with the left and with the Arab parties, who I think now have like 20% or 20% of the delegation, something like that. And we're talking with Caroline Glick, uh, who was a, a very highly respected a journalist in in Israel, around the country, really, around the world. But she is based in Israel. She's a senior columnist, again, at Israel Hayum. I'm not saying that right, am I, Caroline? How do I pronounce that? Yeah, Israel Hayum. Hayum, okay. Both for my Middle East News Hour and for all of my writing, uh, your listeners can go to my website, which is carolynglitz.com. It's the easiest okay. way to find me, I think. Uh, that would be easy. <laughs> that would make it easy. All right. Um, last night, uh, my understanding, or somewhere in the last hours, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu made a pretty, what's described as a pretty fiery speech, uh, his final speech, at least at this stage in his career as a, the prime minister. What can you tell us about that? Um, you know, I think what he talked about was both the usurping of power um, by Naftali Bennett and, and Yair Lapid through uh, deception. They, uh, Naftali uh, deceived his voters into thinking that he was going to be part of the right-wing bloc, which is why they voted for him. And uh, if he were to try to stand for election again today, he wouldn't even get into the Knesset. So, you know, this is a man with absolutely no democratic legitimacy to be uh, uh, prime Minister, and so what he's doing is is legal uh, in a formal sense, but it's you know what what's seen by most Israelis is illegitimate uh, from a from the sense of, of the way that things are done in this country because he deceived his voters, and um, so Netanyahu talks about that, and he discussed all of the things that he's accomplished uh, as Prime Minister over the past twelve years, both uh, inside of Israel in terms of our economy. And uh, obviously, we were the first country in the world to uh, get out of the epidemic, the, the pandemic of uh, COVID-19, because he managed through ways that are still unbelievable to convince Pfizer to uh, have Israel serve as the pilot program for vaccines. And so, you know, people all over the world are still in lockdown, and in Israel, we're not wearing masks anymore. Um, so it's, um, you know, it was an it was an extraordinary achievement just on know, on, on that. And so he was talking about that, and he was talking about all the things that he did diplomatically and strategically uh, over the past, uh, over the past uh, uh, 10, 12 years, and standing up to the Obama administration, and both operationally and diplomatically blocking Iran's path to nuclear weapons, building alliances with our regional allies that, uh, that formed into the Abraham Accords under uh, Donald Trump, getting to the Americans Getting, getting the United States to recognize Jerusalem as our capital after 70 years and moving the U.S. Embassy to our capital city, 
recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and so on and so forth. Actually, I was very uh, complimented in a way because much of what he said was uh, was what I wrote in my article last Friday in the newspaper <laughs> here, and people can read it on my website, um, and also two weeks ago in relation to Iran's nuclear program. So um, the point is just that uh, you know Netanyahu explained what his achievements were. He explained what's at stake now moving forward, because that was the thing we were talking about before, specifically on Iran. So one of the ways that Netanyahu was able to achieve what he achieved, in both operationally and diplomatically on Iran, both towards the United States and Europe, and also towards um, the Arab nations of the Middle East, was by standing stalwart against uh, nuclear appeasement of Iran, which is the policy of the Biden administration, was the policy of the Obama, of the Obama administration uh, beforehand. And what this government is saying is we're not going to have any open fights with the Americans. We're going to discuss all of our disagreements behind closed doors. But had he done that, the Arabs would never have trusted Israel. And if they hadn't trusted Israel, they would never come to Israel and develop strategic ties with us to block Iran, to contain Iran's threat, both regionally and from a nuclear perspective. Caroline, and let me so, jump in. Let me jump know, that, in. And that's let the me, danger. Yeah, let me jump in and make that point uh, in a different way because I, I probably haven't emphasized it enough that one of the, the incredible achievements of the uh, of the Trump administration and Netanyahu working in partnership, uh, Israel and the United States, was this Abraham Accord, and it was for the first time getting Arab nations uh, to cooperate and a treaty sort of to work to block uh, Iran from doing the, the the things that they would love to do. It's it was an amazing achievement, and now of course I think we can fully expect that they will chip away at that. They meaning what the left, uh, the the enemies of um, of that uh, peace process will chip away at that until they have destroyed it. I think you can probably expect that. Um, is it true that Netanyahu uh, sort of went after Biden in his speech last night? Well, I mean, he criticized Iran's, his nuclear diplomacy with Iran, absolutely. I mean, he didn't say anything inconsistent with what he's said publicly, uh, you know, for the past many years about the nuclear deal and about attempts to uh, uh, maintain it, or in Biden's case, to return America to it after uh, Trump uh, walked away from it uh, in 2018. So, you know, these are people say he attacked uh, Biden. No, I mean he attacked nuclear peace of Iran, and uh, the fact that Biden is engaging in it. You know, that was one of the things that was really sort of awful about the demonization of of Netanyahu. Is that they said that he was taking a partisan stand or involving himself inside of America's domestic politics, and that's simply not true. I mean, Netanyahu uh, publicly opposed George H. W. Bush uh, when he thought that his peace plan from 1992 was antithetical to Israel's national interests, to the point where James Baker was then Secretary of State barred Netanyahu from entering to the State Department. So did that make him a Democrat? I mean, it was just that he he wanted to push a policy that was that was more uh, that took into consideration Israel's existential concerns about about the Palestinians and about uh, its need for defensible borders and its rightful lands in Judea and Samaria. And uh, and so, you know, it didn't make him a Democrat. And by the same token, you know, when, when Obama started pushing a peace plan that would have made Israel indefensible and uh, really at the mercy of its neighbors who wish it ill, 
uh, he stood up to it and opposed it, and but and and he did the same thing with Iran with with Obama's Iran policy. That didn't make him a Republican. That made him and, a yeah. guardian of Israel, which is what one would expect an Israeli leader to be. And it has nothing to do uh, with what party anybody is from in the United States. It has to do with Israel's national survival. So. That doesn't make him uh, somebody who's getting involved in American domestic affairs. It, it involves him being the prime minister of Israel who's trying to protect his country as best as he can. And yep. and I think that that was really one of the more malign attacks that was made on him by Democrats. And they did it because they were trying to personalize it and make it into something, yes. you know, a character flaw on, on Netanyahu's part or some untoward uh, uh, penetration or attempt to infiltrate American politics on his part when everything was very much above board and on the table and nothing hidden from view with no ulterior motive. The only motive was to protect Israel. As an American watching him for years, that's exactly my take on it. Uh, he loves his country. He's been a fierce defender of Israel when uh, the winds have changed here several times and he's just fought and fought and fought for his own country. We have one last question. It's really important. We just have a couple of minutes left, Caroline. And that is, uh, is it, could it possibly happen that Netanyahu could come back? Uh, the response in Israel today must be a shock. Uh, is it possible that he could come back? Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's the head of the opposition now. Uh, and uh, this government makes no sense. Uh, you know, it, 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 no, the, the, the various parts of it, Aside from getting rid of Netanyahu, have nothing in common, and uh, so I think you know there, it's already seeing stresses today. They're attacking one another. Members of the coalition are attacking one another today because they really just don't agree about anything with one another. So I think that they may fall apart, and uh, certainly uh, the opposition is going to be much more unified than the coalition is. And yep. so I think that. There's every chance that he'll come back. I don't know how long it'll take, though. I mean, yep. yeah, and a, and a lot of nonsense can help and a lot of dangerous stuff. You guys are such a small country. I bet people just don't understand how precarious your circumstances are in terms of national security. But you can go to carolineglick.com, and we'll put that uh, link, by the way, on our Facebook page. And hopefully they won't take it down, carolineglick.com, and uh, find the things that she's writing and saying. And it will be a great resource for those of you who have a special interest in what's going on in Israel. Caroline, I don't want to say stay safe. It's become a cliche. But I hope that you are safe, and we wish nothing but God's greatest blessing for the, the nation of Israel. Thanks for joining us. Sandy Rios in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.